What scares you? The darkness? The unknown? Things that go bump in the night? Maybe it's something a little more mundane, like heights, spiders, or public speaking. We all experience fear in different ways, although the effect can be life-altering. But there is one thing you can be sure of. It's far more than a simple emotion. This week, we're going to get spooky with the science of fear. We'll learn why we experience it and how it can be both good and bad for you. We'll also find out why fear can make us see things that simply don't exist. And in our SAS class, we're going to explore a different fascination with this emotion. On screen. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to frighten you with the science of what makes us scared. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. Fear is one of those emotions we all know well, but few of us truly understand. We know it's an instinct. It shows up when we're uncertain about something or when we feel threatened. And we also know without fear we would be doomed to make decisions that could end up hurting or even killing us. But fear goes far deeper than life or death situations. We experience it in all sorts of scenarios, including some that offer no threat at all, like horror films. We'll get into that a little later. We also know that we tend to hold on to some fears well beyond the original threat. The most common example happens to be post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. As we have learned, experiencing a major fear can lead to the development of memories that can be sparked by even the slightest trigger. The end result can put a person's mental health at risk. To learn more about the science of fear, we've reached out to Jacob Rader and Sidney Weber Boutros at the Oregon Health and Science University. He's a professor of behavioral neuroscience at the School of Medicine, and she is seeking her doctorate under him. They're taking the lead on fear for an international research collaboration known as Neuroqualia. Their goals are to produce a detailed description of the domains that encompass fear, learn of the relationships with other parts of the brain, and figure out how all of this affects our lives. Why do we experience fear in the first place? So we experience this either because it's an unpleasant, strong emotion that could be anticipated, or, or it could be awareness of danger. So there could also be a case, for example, um, you could be fearful for something you never experienced that might have been there from birth, and you might be fearful for something because something negative happened to you uh, you were robbed in a certain alley in downtown, and now you walk by that alley, and now you are fearful because you remember that event that you were robbed there. Take us through a fearful experience. What is happening in the brain? Yeah, there are a couple uh, really well-known brain regions that light up uh, when we encounter a fearful experience. One of those is the amygdala. So it's the amygdala is this almond-shaped structure. Uh, it has been shown both in humans and animals, to be incredibly important for memory of fear. There are some other brain regions as well, such as the hippocampus. Uh, 
and people might be familiar with the hippocampus as a memory region um, that assists in interpreting what the amygdala is saying is a fearful experience, as well as parts of our prefrontal cortex, which will help uh, either calm or heighten that fearful emotion. Often what will happen when we encounter something, a stimulus, you know, say we're out working in the yard and we see the garden hose, uh, but it kind of looks like a snake. Uh, there will be a really rapid activation of the autonomic nervous system, and our amygdala will come on board right away, indicating, you know, this might be a fearful, dangerous time. Then other brain regions, um, as a couple seconds go by, will start to mediate that big spike in uh, cortisol, our stress hormone, and uh, activity in the amygdala. So regions like the hippocampus and parts of the prefrontal cortex, especially a region called the anterior cingulate cortex, will start to interpret and integrate all of the information and help either calm us down by recognizing that it is a garden hose and not a snake, or if it is a snake, to help us have the appropriate response, which would be to most likely flee the situation. Yes, and in addition, it also depends what kind of threat. So, for example, uh, if you hear a siren and it reminds you that you were um, maybe because you were a part of a rescue team and you relive a, a trauma that way, we think the amygdala is more important. This sounds a lot like post-traumatic stress disorder, where people have that first experience and then somehow seem to relate it to something much more fearful. Is that really the case? Yes, and in addition, there is this, what we see as in PTSD patients, they try very hard to avoid the stimulus to begin with. So there has been a lot of interest in um, exposure therapy to what we call safety signal, to have patients go through the same cue, the same stimulus, and say, you know, it's safe now, but that might still be enough for the, the patient to relive the trauma. So oftentimes, although the patient understands that this is not the same as before, it still is a reminder to them that the trauma is there. And they still, oftentimes, patients try therefore to avoid it uh, in the first place. Is that why the idea of using virtual reality and the concept of safe spaces is helping? It's not that we're removing the stimulus, it's we're removing the ability to associate that stimulus with something that has made us fearful in the past. Right, to learn a new experience. Although typically we think about this as suppression of the memory, um, because if there is a, a reminder, um, we oftentimes see that the memory is still there. So um, we don't think that the memory is all the way gone. But the memory changes over time, and you try to, again, you want to send a safety signal. So although this was before a fearful situation, now it's a safe one. We really think that this is the process of forming a new memory that overrides the old fearful memory. And with enough times being exposed to the same cues without an aversive stimulus happening, so without something dangerous or something harmful happening, that the new memory will become stronger than the fearful memory. What about the idea of facing our fears? We, we, we hear about this all the time, but I'm wondering, does it work? So for some fears, it works. Uh, people have made great progress. For example, um, social phobias, uh, virtual reality programs have really helped some uh, people to get used to the environment. 
But in other cases, like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, like I mentioned earlier, oftentimes, if, even if the patient understands that it's now safe, they still would like to avoid any cue that reminds them of the, mem of the trauma. So there, it's actually uh, less successful. And actually, it's, uh, it's uh, clear, like, for example, you have a war a veteran goes to the movie house and sees an action movie and then runs out because they, they relive the trauma because there's something there that resembles this old situation that they were in. It was traumatic. So there it's, it has been uh, less successful. And what about the people who seem to thrive on fear? Is it something in the brain that keeps them that way? Or perhaps there's some other experience that they had and they got a rush from it and they always want to feel that rush. You know, is, it, is it something that we're born with or could it simply be an addiction? There has been a lot of interest in people who seem to seek out fearful experiences or, you know, risky experiences, um, thinking a lot about, you know, people who do crazy rock climbing without any ropes, for example. Um, and those people do seem to have alterations in how their amygdala responds to fearful stimuli generally. So it seems like there's some kind of differential signaling that happens in the brain where it's a little bit subdued. Um, they don't feel the same extent of fear, it seems, as people in the normal population. So they have a higher threshold. You could think of it that way, a higher threshold of what will actually cause them fear. Is there a way then to be able to train ourselves to become more resistant to fear then? Yeah, what we do know, though, is that uh, uh, people have looked at um, uh, the brains of people, especially the amygdala size, and you can predict people who later who develop uh, trauma, PTSD especially, if they undergo all the same trauma. So you can predict they are not all at the same risk. So if a group of people undergo the same kind of event, some will develop uh, fear, abnormal fear behavior and other ones do not. Uh, training, so you could say, yeah, and, and, and to some degree you can train yourself to say, well, this is really safe. It's still scary, right? If you talk to people like the, uh, like to jump out of airplanes, things like that, uh, there's always this moment, so is my parachute going to open or not, right? That, that's hard to train for. Even after years of jumping, you will still have that, that feeling. So in essence, when it comes to fear, we can't really control the first component, which is the instinctual we might be able to control the second part, which is our reaction or our interpretation of that stimulus. But it looks like we might be able to find ways to be able to at least lessen the ones that tend to make us incredibly fearful. Exactly. And also it comes with experience, right? If you see now, uh, last week, uh, the first Russian astronaut uh, passed away. You can imagine if you're an astronaut and the first time you go to space, everything is new and very scary, but if you've gone for another space flight, you have done that before, and although the situation might be different, likely you will be less fearful for the mission. Where that very initial uh, surge of fear, which is automatically controlled, we don't have the ability to subdue that initial, wow, I'm afraid, and that initial light up of the amygdala and rush of cortisol, but the ability of our other brain regions to come on board, like the prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingular cortex and the hippocampus, 
to mediate that fear and essentially logically talk yourself out of it, it seems like we might be able to train that a little bit better. But who knows how well that will go. <laughs> if you're in a scary situation, even if it's virtual, you tend to experience stimuli more vividly. The slightest movement can spark an immediate reaction like a flinch, a shiver, or trigger your flight response and get you to run away. That's instinctual. You must always be ready for a potential threat. But our minds can play tricks on us when we're afraid and convince us that we are seeing things that aren't there. Like when you see a ghost looming in the dark, but it's really just a coat hanger by the door. We see something that scares us and immediately believe we may be seeing something like paranormal activity or perhaps supernatural entities. Our next guest has studied this aspect of fear. His name is Adam Tratner, and he is a doctoral student at Oakland University. He's been exploring how being immersed in a fearful environment can lead us to see those non-existent entities. It's a process known as false agency detection. What is false agency detection? Okay, well, first I'd like to just take a, a step back from that and just first address, like, what is agency detection? In general. So agency detection just broadly refers to the ability to detect and infer the presence of an autonomous agent in the environment that you happen to be inhabiting at any given time. Uh, false agency detection is just, well, when you falsely, you falsely, you mistakenly detect an agent in your environment when there really is none. So essentially you're seeing things. Yeah, you, you could say it's I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to group that in the same category as, as just a full blown hallucination. But you could think of it as kind of just a perceptual goof. You know, you're inferring that there's something might be that you're perceiving that there's something might be there based on some some smattering of cues you're getting from your environment when there actually is nothing there. So so, so just to provide some really mundane examples, imagine walking into your house late at night and it's kind of dark, you don't have any lights on, and the shadows casted on the walls um, are just, they just so happen to create the shapes that almost resemble like the form of a body or a face or something like that. And for, you know, for a moment, you, you see it out of the corner of your eye and it kind of gives you a jump scare. You're like, whoa, oh my gosh, I think there might be something there. And you flip on the light, there's nothing there. It just so happened that, you know, the way that your environment was set up and the way that the lights are being cast, it just essentially tricked your perceptual system for a moment into thinking that there might have been something there. And this is something that we do on a regular basis. It doesn't necessarily have to do with fear. I mean, we see faces in clouds, right? A, a certain subset of psychologists, um, I guess including myself, argue that humans in particular have this hyperactive agency detection mechanism that are just, just built into our mental software, whereby we, we actively perceive we overperceive agency all the time in our environment. It doesn't necessarily have to do with fear, but when we are we enter certain states of arousal, um, let's say if, if we're if we're fearful or anxious, we might be biased in the way that we interpret stimuli in our world, and this might, I guess, facilitate even more false agency detection than we would if we were just sort of walking into our house, just in a calm state of mind after you know getting home from work. You're using the model of walking in a dark house, uh, and, and I, I, I appreciate that because that's something everybody can associate with. We, we've all done that. 
But in your study, you subjected volunteers to something a little bit more fearful. It was the game Slender the Arrival. I mean, it's a first-person horror game. (laughs) So how did that turn out when it came to false agency detection? Right, right. So, uh, yeah, let me uh, me just back up and, I guess, describe a little bit of what we did for that study. So uh, we had participants come into the laboratory, and they played a very small segment of this survival horror game called Slender the Arrival. Now, the participants didn't actually know that they were playing Slender the Arrival. Like, they didn't, you know, we didn't start up the game in front of them. They didn't see the loading screen or anything like that. It was just sort of set up so that as soon as they walked in and they were ready to go with the virtual reality task, they put on the Oculus Rift, that's what we used, and uh, they just started the level that we transported them to that we were using for the sake of that experiment. That's like Peter Venkman type of cruel, though, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, for science, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so the environment that is portrayed in this first little level of Slender the Arrival, this little segment of the level, I mean, it's yeah, it's kind of spooky. It's kind of ominous. Um, it's It takes place in an outdoor environment, in a forest. It's just a big old map for them to walk around in, essentially. And that's really all that they were uh, tasked with doing. We just told them, look, no objectives. Go ahead and just meander throughout this virtual reality map. And we're going to let you just do this on your own for about 15 minutes. And we instructed them, what we want you to do is we want you to press a button when you, uh, when you perceive some sort of a terrestrial sort of agent in your environment. We didn't give them, we didn't lead them on with anything. We didn't tell them, look for a person, look for an animal. We just said, you know, just click a button every time you think you see something, essentially. And, you know, the, the kicker was that there was, there was actually nothing in the environment. The level is kind of set up. I guess, psych out people, you know, it's just to sort of get people kind of revved up for when they actually get to the latter portions of the level and, and things really get scary and you actually are basically running from the evil Slender Man. But uh, for that beginning segment of the level, they're just walking in an environment and they're not interacting with anything or anyone. What was kind of interesting is we found that the vast majority of participants, I mean, 95% plus, pressed the button more than one time, you know, they indicated they thought they saw something. And even just sort of off the cuff verbally, many of the participants after participating in that task were, you know, even told me and my research assistants, wow, I really, you know, I think I saw something. I think I, I think I was being followed. And, you know, the spoiler was that there was actually nothing. They were not being followed by anything. They, and they couldn't have seen anything in the environment because there was nothing in the environment to see. So, for, for what it's worth, uh, it maybe that might be speaking to, let's say, a general tendency for humans to overperceive agency in the environment. Well, I mean, that still goes along the lines with things that go bump in the night. We we know about that. What I find interesting is that maybe, and your study, from my perspective, seems to prove this. If you prime somebody by telling them you're walking into the dark forest, watch out, much like we hear in not only in horror films, but also in some of the fantasy films and novels and that type of thing, it's getting us ready to anticipate something that's just not there. So when it comes to fear, do you think one of the driving factors of false agency detection, especially when we're fearful, is the fact that we're primed for it? You know, if, if you're in a fearful or anxious state of mind, you actually perceive and interpret stimuli differently than you would if you were otherwise in a, you know, a different sort of uh, emotional state or a different state of arousal. So you'll 
hyperactively attend to certain types of cues and sort of ignore other ones. You get like this sort of perceptual tunnel vision, if you will. Especially if, if you have this perception that there's imminent danger, you're, you're really going to grab on to any stimuli that might indicate something that could be potentially dangerous or threatening. When people are reviewing the accuracy of eyewitness testimony, what's frequently found is that people who are in really contentious situations, maybe if there's like an armed robbery or some sort of a physical altercation going on, people get this kind of perceptual tunnel vision where they get hyper-focused on the stuff in the environment that seems like it's the most threatening, like the weapon or, you know, the actual the details of the altercation itself. And people just sort of, you know, they, it's almost like they black out from the other relevant details of the scene. Like they might forget the color of the people's clothes, the exact things that people are wearing around them, uh, the color of people's skin, et cetera. So, so it just, just sort of speaks to this. If you get into certain sort of states of mind, it could actually bias the way that you in, in not only just recall uh, information for events that transpired, but that just it also biases the types of information that you're attending to in your environment. Could this false agency detection be related to people's belief in, say, the paranormal? One of the one of the big ideas here in the psychological literature is that our tendency towards false agency detection feeds into our beliefs in the supernatural, specifically supernatural agents. So the, the idea for this study is that maybe some people differ in the extent to which they falsely perceive agents in their environment. And maybe the people who are more likely to falsely perceive agents in their environment are also more likely to believe in supernatural agents like ghosts. Because there's you know, humans vary in their psychological traits. They vary in the ways that they're able to perceive information in the world around them and interpret this information. That you know, the individuals who, who just are a little bit jumpier in terms of their false agency detection might be more disposed towards beliefs in supernatural agents, if that makes sense. So really, when it comes down to it, our minds are as much a factor in determining whether or not our house is haunted than the actual EMPs or electromagnetic potentials that we get in those uh, uh, haunted investigations. Correct. It, it could very well be that, you know, just the way that the mind is designed, the way that it's structured, and the way that it sort of naturally interprets things in the environment and the way that it perceives stimuli in the environment, this might lend itself to the capacity to believe in these kinds of entities or these kinds of supernatural agents. It's SAS class time, and today, as promised, we're heading to the movies to explore the fascination with fear in films, particularly horror movies. I know not everyone likes them, but for those who do, a few hours of having one's blood curdle can be an awesome experience. Our guest teacher has investigated why some of us simply love being scared. His name is Glenn Sparks, and he is a professor of communication at Purdue University. Can you tell us once and for all why some people just simply love horror movies? Well, I, lo I love the way you phrase that question, uh because not everybody does, but, but you're right, some people do. And uh, there's a lot of reasons, not just one reason. You know, uh, some people uh, really get a kick out of, uh, out of going to these movies and uh, coming out on the other end and saying, you know, I mastered that. I, 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 I went through it, and I came out okay, and I can tell my friends that I saw it, and it wasn't any big deal. It's, uh, 
I, I sometimes compare this to taking a ride on a roller coaster. You know, when I was uh, older in life, I hadn't ridden coasters for a while. And uh, when I went on my first one and I came out on the other end and it was great, I enjoyed it. Uh, I, I, I looked up at it and I, I then could tell my friends, hey, I rode the coaster and I got through it. And I like coasters now. Uh, and I, so I think that mastery idea is something that uh, kicks in on horror films. Uh, you know, and in that sense, the scarier, the better, because you can say, man, I made it through the most gruesome parts of that. Uh, and I came out okay. So that's one reason. Another reason is that these, these, these films contain material that you can't see everywhere. You can't see in everyday life. And uh, human beings are wired for novelty. You know, the, the people who are paying attention to their environment and uh, saw things that they didn't see every day, those, survive, those people survived. They were more likely to survive because there were threats. And so uh, there's a, there's a novelty-seeking uh, thing here. Uh, Sometimes I compare that to uh, stopping at the scene of a gory accident. It's not that you really enjoy watching people uh, bleed to death on the pavement, but you don't see that every day. And so there's, there's a novelty factor that's attracting people to that. But I also think that there's this catharsis that comes with watching it. Yes, you've, you've, you've succeeded. You've gotten over the hill. You've had the coaster ride. But there's almost this sense of calm and enjoyment that I get out of watching some of these films. Nightmare on Elm Street was probably one of the ones that I truly, absolutely love. It's almost like you wait, you wait, the popcorn gets tossed due to that scare, and then you just feel like you're on this high, I don't know if it's dopamine or serotonin or something, but you just feel good afterwards. Well, that's right. Uh, and uh, there's actually uh actually a pretty specific uh, effect that we talk about that goes with that. So after the film is over, people feel relieved. They often feel a sense of enjoyment uh, that uh, oftentimes in these movies, that the person they were cheering for, the character they were cheering for uh, was victorious. And, uh, and they're often with friends afterwards. And, and so they're having a good time. And uh, what, what, what happens is that the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, there's physiological arousal that the horror induces, and uh, all emotions are intensified by arousal. And so at the end of the film, when you feel that sense of relief, that emotion feels more intense than a normal relief emotion might feel because it's being intensified by the arousal that the, uh, that the horror film induced. And so that really, uh, that, that really is a dynamic that we have studied, and we know that that sort of thing happens. And so... Uh, uh, what you're describing is uh, is a very real thing. I mean, people people do feel a very intense positive feeling uh, after they watch these films. Oftentimes, it's not that they enjoyed being scared. I think that's an important point. You know, fear is a negative emotion, and so when you feel a threat to your well-being, that's not enjoyable. When I'm up on the top track of the roller coaster, looking down, contemplating that the the cart may fall off and hurtle me to the ground. That's not the enjoyable feeling. The enjoyable feeling is afterwards when I've made it through that, 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 that relief is being energized by the arousal that I felt when I was up there. And so it's a very similar phenomenon. Is that then why we seem to have comedy integrated into some of these horrific films? They have that yes. almost comedic element put into it as a way of, I don't know, maybe just making the fear a little less intense, by, but still giving us that really nice reward at the end. Yes, there's kind of a, there, there's a dynamic with some of these films where, where comedy is, uh, is uh, injected. A comedy we know from the research actually does relieve tension. I mean, people, people watch comedy 
to relieve uh, feelings of tension and anxiety. And I think in the in a, in a violent or a horror film, that that comedy is uh, we experience that as kind of a a relief of the tension that we're feeling when we're watching the horror or the violence. Uh, and so the comedy allows us to sort of relax again and uh, and find some humor, and it relieves that tension that has been built up. And there's kind of like a repeating a repeating pattern there through the film. And so we're we, we almost uh, come to expect that even though this might be getting bad in terms of our tension that we're feeling, uh, maybe maybe a new comedic element is, is coming, and I'm going to be able to sort of relax again. And so that, 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 that is a definite pattern that uh, some of these films follow. And speaking of films, horror, fear, otherwise, we're always hearing about some of these people who think that the world is a more violent place because of Hollywood. I want you to address this because I personally don't believe it. I don't think that watching a horror film is going to make the world a more violent place. Well, that, that's a really interesting question. There is a line of research that definitely uh, uh, shows that uh, as people consume heavy amounts of this kind of material, they may develop a kind of an anxiety or a fear, we might say, of being victimized by a, a crime or criminal behavior. Uh, they may, uh, they may feel that, uh, but on the other hand, people, people are attracted to this kind of entertainment sometimes, especially if the, the perpetrators of violence are, are uh, brought to justice. And so they may seek out this entertainment uh, in order to feel better about the world. Uh, hey, the, the, yeah, there is crime going on. There's also law enforcement people that are, bring, are catching these people and bringing them to justice. And so... Of the, uh, I think one of the things fueling the appetite for this kind of uh, entertainment is that uh, people know that if they watch this, they might, they might uh, encounter some uh, scenarios which give them relief from the fear that uh, otherwise might be building up or the anxiety that builds up. But, but yeah, we do, know that, we do know that heavy viewers of this kind of entertainment do, do develop some anxiety and fear of being victimized. So... For the listeners out there who may want to do some of their own, shall we say, research, do you have any examples of films that they can watch which will take them through the fear, make them toss their popcorn, and then feel that nice happiness afterwards? Or is it really a personal thing and they should just go out there and experiment on their own? Well, I really, I, I think that uh, the kinds of films that might uh, might be good ones to bring up in that context are ones where there is a sense of uh, sort of the uh, evil forces or whatever you want to call them are defeated uh, in the film rather than sort of remain and the, uh, the tension that's been built up remains unresolved. I think that's really a big, a big factor. You know, in, in a film like uh, The Shining, which is one of my all-time favorite uh, horror films, I think when I came out of that film, I did sense a, 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 a feeling of, oh, it's over. Uh, you know, it's done. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they ended it up without a, a complete bloodbath. Uh, you know, they, went, they ran through the maze, and the Jack Nicholson character ends up dead. And so there's a sense of relief there. Uh, and certainly I felt that. I don't know about your other listeners here. Uh, on the other hand, uh, to go way back into the 1970s, a film like The Exorcist, people came out of that movie, I think, uh, generally feeling continued anxiety and fear because the prospect of demon possession was never really uh, eliminated uh, at the end of that movie. And so a lot of people came out of that movie sort of haunted 
and suffering lingering fears that lasted for a long time. There was no sense of relief, you might say. In fact, several people, there's a, there's a, a, a well-known academic article that was published. Several people had to be hospitalized after seeing that film because they, they were so terrorized by the scenarios. Uh, one, one guy went home and noticed that his bedroom looked like Linda Blair's bedroom, and uh, he just kind of freaked out. So, uh, you know, uh, there are films that uh, help, help people to experience this resolution of tension and other films that don't. And, and I think that uh, for different people, that those are going to be different movies. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has given you some insight into fear and how it can affect you. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming, and we want to show that gratitude by taking your questions and answering them on the show, usually as themes. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week, and as always, make sure to show him some sass.